Hello and welcome to Beth Takun and the Spiritual Seasons series. In this group of teachings, we are looking at the Torah portions and Moedim in the light of God's overall pattern of salvation. <clears throat> this week, we pause the Torah portion cycle to celebrate the important Moed of Rosh Hashanah. The readings for the week are Genesis 21 and 22, the stories of the birth of Isaac, the casting out of Ishmael, and the binding of Isaac. There's a lot of detail to cover here for the month of Tishrei and Rosh Hashanah. So I thought that before we dig in, I'd start out on a bit of a lighter note with a couple of lighthearted marriage-related stories. <clears throat> the theme of marriage is perhaps the dominant theme of the three great Moedim of the seventh month, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Sukkot. In a way, it is the grand theme, marriage is, of the whole calendar and the goal of creation. God desires a bride. We begin preparing for marriage from the moment that we're born. And what we learn of marriage from a young age profoundly affects our lives. The first little story involves a young one beginning to learn about marriage. At Sunday school, they were teaching how God created everything, including human beings. Little Johnny, a child in the kindergarten class, seemed especially intent when they told him how Eve was created out of one of Adam's ribs. Later in the week, his mother noticed him lying down as though he were ill and said, Johnny, what's the matter? Johnny said, I don't feel well. I think I'm having a wife. Well, the second story involves a married couple who had a quarrel and ended up, this one made me laugh out loud, uh, they had a quarrel and ended up giving each other the silent treatment. Two days into their mute argument, the man realized he needed his wife's help. In order to catch a flight to Chicago for a business meeting, he had to get up at 5 a.m. Not wanting to be the first to break the silence, he wrote on a piece of paper, please wake me at 5 a.m. The next morning, the man woke up only to discover his wife was already out of bed. It was 9 a.m., and his flight had long since departed. He was about to find his wife and demand an answer for her failings when he noticed a piece of paper by the bed. He read, It's 5 a.m. Wake up. Well, with those profundities out of the way, let's um, next turn our attention to the important month of Tishrei, which begins with Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah is unique in that it's a new moon, the beginning of the month, rather than one <clears throat> that's on a full moon, which is what many of them are on the, in the middle of the month. It is, a Rosh Hashanah is the Rosh Kodesh for the seventh month of the year. In the ancient Babylonian Akkadian language, Tishrei means beginning. And apparently the seventh month was universally accepted in the ancient world as the beginning of the year. I'm not sure why that would be, maybe because God uh, creates, you know, repeats, and there was evening and there was morning the first day, and, but um, it's kind of the evening on the calendar. For whatever reason, anciently, uh, they took uh, the seventh month to be the beginning of the year, and God changes this for Israel <clears throat> during the Exodus, switching the beginning of Israel's months to the spring. 
And so to this day, Israel numbers Nisan in the spring as the first month and Tishrei as the seventh. However, Israel has understood that Tishrei remains a beginning point in the calendar nonetheless. I and mean, there's some reason why all of these cultures were uh, focusing in on that point as being a beginning or the beginning. And so Israel has preserved that there are two beginnings in the year. And we don't have to look very far to see that God has clearly built both, uh, both of these beginning points into the yearly calendar in the form of two equinoxes. We've talked about this before, but we need to talk about it here now again at Rosh Hashanah. So there are only two points in the year called an equinox, one near Rosh Hashanah and one near Rosh Kodesh Nisan, beginning of the first month, beginning of the seventh month. And so it's only around these two days, um, which are obviously opposite to each other in the year, that day and night are essentially 12 hours everywhere on the globe. They're balanced, 12 and 12. And so at every other moment, either the day is longer than the night or vice versa. As we pass through Rosh Hashanah and the fall equinox, the night begins to dominate the day in the northern hemisphere. In the southern hemisphere, it's opposite. And so that's a big change when the night begins to be longer than the day. So the huge yearly fluctuations in daylight probably don't register as much with us today because we have easy artificial light. Just flip the switch. But for most of human history, that wasn't the case. Even if you had candles, you had to buy them or you had to make them. And so the duration of daylight affected our ancestors much more So let me mention that the first days of Nisan and Tishrei drift around. They drift around the two equinoxes from year to year. They're only once in a while, only occasionally are they directly on the equinox. But um, these two Rosh Kodeshes, these Rosh Kodeshim, are basically the lunar calendar equivalents of the yearly equinoxes on the solar calendar. In in the lunar calendar, we don't get any closer to these two points than the beginning of the first month and the beginning of the seventh month. And so it's possible that there is actually a word in the Torah for this idea of the equinox. It's the word turn in the phrase, the turn of the year. And so we find this in Exodus 34, where it says that, we are to observe Sukkot at the turn of the year. And so some translations say at the end of the year, as the NASB does, or the ESV that I was looking at, actually. It says the end of the year instead of the turn of the year, but I think that's a poor translation. The word is tekufa, and that means a turning. It has to do with a circular uh, nature. And so... The whole year is turning, though, right? Every day, there's, it's a circle, so every point on the circle is turning. But Tishrei is the big turn in the year, or Tishrei and Nisan, when, uh, particularly at, at Tishrei, is when night begins to dominate the day. This is what I think the Bible is calling the turn of the year, when the, the night is now 12 hours and just a little bit 
more and the day is 11 hours and 50 whatever. Um, and so one reason I'm taking the time to talk about these equinoxes again here is that some will argue that Rosh Hashanah is not really a beginning point in the calendar because God sets Nisan as the beginning of the year during the Exodus, right? The season of Passover is to be the, the first of the months for them. And um, I think we can say that the main beginning of the year is indeed Rosh Kodesh Nisan and the month of Passover, because that is what God said, and that is what God ordained. But there is a secondary beginning in the year at the other equinox. And so that's what we're coming to here at Rosh Hashanah. That's just God's design, that there be these two conspicuous transition points in the calendar. And so remember that the year is, um, it's like a mini lifetime. We experience rebirth and we experience death and the whole gamut in between over the course of a single year. The, the whole picture is there of a lifetime. Every year we're living a whole lifetime. And God's picturing that in nature and in other ways. And if we're thinking about beginning points in our lifetimes, there are two that especially stand out above the others. So the first would be our moment of birth. It's obviously a beginning point. But the second, I would say, is the moment of marriage. So marriage is it's pretty extreme when it comes to how we're living our life. Um, though it's not as extreme as being born, um, in a way, it's... It, yeah, there's a death that has to happen and a rebirth there at marriage. And so marriage requires an unmaking of the life we had and a recreating together as an echad, as a oneness, right? And so as these two points in life are exactly, <clears throat> you know, as we look at these two points and in our lifetimes, these are the two that we're seeing on the small scale of the year. And Nisan, on the one hand, is birth, and, and Tishrei here with Rosh Hashanah, and, and the month of Tishrei, we're seeing a marriage take place at these two big turning points in the year. And so, in that vein, let's continue now with the associations. Um, we can see, you know, those that we can see ourselves that are kind of obvious to us, and, and those that tradition adds to the month of Tishrei that, um, you know, might support this idea that we're talking about. What, what is the Jewish tradition around the month of Tishrei? And what is, what's the energy for growth that uh, we are, that God is providing to humanity in the month of Tishrei? And so what we will see is that the special energy God is putting into the universe and, and shining upon the earth and, and shedding upon the earth is this. It's the energy to bring opposites together, right? Didn't we just say birth at the, in the first month, marriage in the seventh month? The, what we're going to see with all of these different details related to Tishrei is that they all have to do with the energy of bringing opposites together or complements together. And so again, this bringing together of complements you know, uh, man and woman are um, very much alike, very much alike. I think sometimes we focus a little too much on the differences. On the other hand, <laughs> they are 
they're opposite too. They're opposite in a way too. And so, um, in fact, the various pictures God puts together to speak to us about opposites coming together for fruitfulness in this month, I find just breathtaking. God is the master poet, the first poet. And uh, we can see that everywhere is, is his poetry, but we especially see his poetry in how he layers various aspects of life and climate and the progression in the stars and the heavens and the Moedim, all of these. He's working together to speak out a unified message in each month of here is how I'm helping you to grow in this month specially. And so let's dig into that a bit. Climactically in Israel, uh, the, the heat is noticeably lessening as Tishrei begins. The first rains will start late in the month near Sukkot. And so Sukkot is, you know, uh, starting on the 15th and going for seven, eight days. And so the rains are beginning right around then. And um, so Tishrei is a pivot point in Israel climactically. It is the meeting point. It's the meeting point of the dry season on the one hand and the rainy season on the other. It's the, the mixing together of fire on the one hand and water on the other hand. And so there is also an agricultural pivot. We're talking climate there. Now let's talk what are we planting? What are we harvesting? And so there's an agricultural pivot that's happening now too from the big fruit harvest to preparations for the next grain planting, the wheat and the barley. And so the great harvest is coming in as Tishrei begins. September is maybe the only month in the year that all of the following can be harvested at the same time. So we have the end of the grape harvest is, is still happening in September. The figs, the pomegranates, the dates, and even the beginning of the olive harvest, which is the, the, the latter of the harvests, the olives, all of those are happening in September. And so, in other words, it's a very fruitful time spiritually, and this is being reflected in a great physical harvest. But as the fruits start to taper off, as September progresses and, and moves into October, it's time to start readying the land for the next grain crops to go in as the rains begin to soften the ground and, and make plowing possible. And so the most obvious example, though, um, so that's the agriculture, the climate and the agriculture. Again, we're seeing these, these, this transition, if you want to call it that, but it's really this idea of two coming together so the most obvious uh, example of that, the coming together of the opposites and the balance of Tishrei is the mazel of the month, which is Mosnaim, the scales, which we know as Libra. You really can't get a better symbol of the idea of opposites coming together than a scale, right? Picture the kind that has that central pole with a bar across the top and then balanced on both sides of that, of that horizontal pole are two dishes. And so balance means that two things are not only perfectly complementary. Let's say it's perfectly balancing there. 
um, they're not only complementary, but they're also connected to each other. They have to be affecting each other, pulling on each other to be balanced. The two weights are connected through that bar that goes across the top of the scale. And so again, recall that the, the very first day of the month, which sets the tone for the month, right? That, that Rosh Kodesh sets the tone for the whole month. And that day is linked to this balance of 12 hours of daylight and 12 hours of night. And so the Mosnaim, the scales, also speak of a kind of balance of God's attributes of justice and compassion. The scales are thought to represent judgment, something being weighed on the scales of justice. And this idea of justice is seen in the idea that we are judged at the beginning of the month. The idea of God's justice carries the idea of firmness and hard edges, gavura, strictness. And this is certainly an element of Tishrei, right? So we've got kind of starting out in a way we could think of it with this strict judgment uh, weighing on the scales. But by the time we get to Sukkot, we're seeing another side. Uh, The energy is quite obviously the outpouring of God's compassion and mercy and grace. Um, We are seeing there at Sukkot both the harvest from the earth and the harvest from the nations of the earth. And, um, And so we have this beginning in strict justice and this ending in the great outpouring of compassion in the form of the harvest And also the rains are beginning at the end of of the month there. And so, and rain is is, is usually uh, connected to God's compassion and his mercy. And so, in fact, the whole month, if we really stop and think about it, the whole month really is filled with God's outpouring of gracious, gracious compassion. And so, yes, there are the scales and the judgment at the beginning. But what if God takes Yeshua's goodness and adds that? to our own on the scale. If the scale is registering the good we've done and the evil we've done, what if God just takes Yeshua's goodness and says, I'm going to add that to your goodness? (laughs) Um, Because in a way, he does do that. And um, even the act of, of calling us to repentance is a compassionate act, right? That is a compassionate act of God to say, come to repentance. And we who are believers see the greatest depths of God's compassion in Yom Kippur, when God's Son presents his own blood as a covering for us, affecting the forgiveness of sins. But my point here is just to say that the month of Tishrei has a special balance of God's justice and compassion. These two complements meeting each other in a special way this month. I mean, we could look at that in a way as, as uh, judgment and compassion in the month, or just that they're both kind of present all through the month, this justice and compassion. And so moving forward to the hush of the month, the bodily ability anciently associated with the month, for Tishrei the hush is marital relations. The Bodily ability associated with Tishrei is the act 
of marital intimacy. And marital intimacy results in fruitfulness. And fruitfulness brings us to the tribe associated with the month, which is Ephraim. Ephraim means double fruit, okay, which is which is also some, somehow evoking this idea of the two coming together and producing fruit. And so again, ultimately, what is all this um, balance and, and complement and fertility about in the month of Tishrei? Let's bring it back around to this relationship with God. We're seeing lots of picture here, pictures here that uh, are speaking a unified message And that message is God and mankind being brought together in relationship. The two complements at the root of all of these pictures of of complementariness are God on the one hand and mankind on the other. There's a renewal of this relationship happening now. Okay, so don't get me wrong. Humanity is not in some way equal to God you know, you don't put God on the scale and put man on the scale and they come out equal. That's not what I'm saying. We are created and he is the creator. Okay, that's not an equal relationship. Yet within the mystery of God, he has chosen to take as his bride the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. And in accepting that proposal and walking it out in faith, we become eternally fruitful. Okay, so these, these themes of the month, and especially this coming together of compliments, it's really talking about God and mankind coming together in a renewed way in this month. And so let's turn now to this very special moed of Rosh Hashanah. By continuing to develop the larger frame we are seeing that God has, um, is providing for us through the month of Tishrei, um, And so I want to narrow that down, this idea of coming together um, a little bit by talking about two journeys in the year. And so um, we can understand many of the various traditions and readings, associations with Rosh Hashanah. If we're coming back to this idea of there are two journeys that we see happening in the year. Obviously, one is going to start in Nisan and one is going to start in Tishrei. And so the nature of that second journey is all going to be contained in the seed, which is Rosh Hashanah. So what is that second journey about? Well, um, we can think of the second journey as the journey of maturity. So let's go back for a minute. The first journey is the journey of youth. And that is the journey from the spring to the fall. We could also call that the journey in the light, the walk in the light. And so the complementary journey, because it's summer, right? The day is very long compared to the night. And so the complementary journey of maturity, the second journey that's starting now, is from the fall back around to the spring. And we can call that the journey in the darkness. And winter is darker. And so again, in uh, the balanced days and nights of Tishrei, these two journeys, they don't just meet in the year. One ends and then the next journey begins. They actually overlap. They over, the two journeys overlap with each other in Tishrei and in Nisan. And the result is fertility. So once again, the seventh month 
is the final month of the first journey and the seventh month does double duty as the first month of the second journey in the year. There's an overlapping happening there. So um, that's a very fundamental structure for the year and we really need to grasp that as we're digging into this picture here. Again, there are two seven-month periods of development. I'm calling them journeys. We can think of them as development. We can think of them as salvation journeys. We can use the word salvation. But there are two of these within the yearly calendar, seven plus seven, which equals 14. We need two extra months because we only have 12 months. And so we get the two extra months we need by counting the first month and the seventh month twice as both beginning months and ending months, the start of a new journey, but also the end of the previous journey. And so let's also repeat a few more fundamentals of these two great phases of development. The first journey is birth, begins with birth, right? There's all that imagery at Passover. Um, Childhood, adolescence, we talked about with Shavuot in the third month. The second journey begins with adulthood and marriage and leads to fruitfulness as we walk that journey. And so in the first journey, when we are not yet an adult, this is one of the most key ideas to think about as we're thinking about the two different journeys. In the first one, as as a newborn, we have little free will. While in the second one, we are an adult who has much free will. And an adult has to step up and make decisions on his or her own. The first journey, as I said, happens in the light, in the spring and summer, the side of the year where the days are longer and dominate the night. And the second journey, once again, um, is in the darkness of fall and winter. And that's when the nights are longer. And so, Again, that's not only the journey of, of kind of lacking free will, but also light. And over here, the journey of, of having free will, but also the darkness. The darkness is necessary because we have to walk in faith. And so, in the first, we are transferred another level out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. Literally, we're leaving the darkness and it's becoming lighter and lighter day by day. And in that long, sunny summer, right, as we come through this first journey, we're absorbing the light of truth, the light of truth. In the second journey, we set out into the dark world. Right? This is what you have to do when you get older. You have to leave that home. You have to set out into the dark world, and you have to figure out how to express that truth, that light, in your unique life situation. So first, we are taught in the light, and then we are given the opportunity to walk it out, to bring it down, you might say, to translate that truth into our own situation so that we become the light in the darkness. And so we've gone through that quite a few times, but... um, you know, it just bears repeating. That is kind of the fundamental, it's, it's a big part of the skeleton of the salvation pattern. 
first you have to get truth, then you have to figure out how to walk that out in your situation. And so, once again, at Rosh Hashanah, that second journey of adulthood and marriage, that is beginning. That's beginning for us here soon. And so, let's quickly walk through uh, those Tishrei Moedim now, linking them together in just in a very general way. And so, there's going to be a lot of detail here. In the end, I'll give just one idea to hold on to as we move forward. Um, you know, this, this might be just a little bit too much. For some, it's only going to take a couple of minutes. Uh, but like I said, in the end, I'm going to tell you what I want you to hang on from that. So Rosh Hashanah is about covenant renewal with God. We crown him king again. We've just come through a time of separation in the calendar, right? Almost like God has turned his face away, destroys his own temples during the three weeks. And um, that long, dry summer without rain, right? the separation of the heavens and the earth. At Rosh Hashanah, we stand together as a community and we say to God, we, we want to be back in relationship with you. <laughs> but we choose you again to be our king. And so from this renewal flows the other two Moedim, Yom Kippur and Sukkot. God answers the covenant renewal, our, you know, our expression of that covenant renewal. He answers that through his son, Yeshua. Through Yeshua, he forgives the sin of humanity. Before this really coming back together is really going to happen, there's a sin problem that needs to be in some way or other dealt with. And so he does that through his son. But he's, you know, us standing up and saying, we choose you. Well, the ball is rolling, and that problem has to be dealt with. So, this is what's happening on Yom Kippur. And um, further through Yeshua, that's the presentation of the blood that, that covers the sin. And so, also through Yeshua, God descends to earth to dwell with us. After that stage is set and the problem is dealt with, and in a way dealt with, um, it's going to be more dealt with as we, as we walk with him. But it, it's at least covered at that point. And um, the thing is that when Yeshua shows up on the scene, which we associate with Sukkot, uh, he's not just coming with the crown. He's not just coming as king. He's also coming as husband. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> and so the king arrives in wedding clothes. What, what follows in the winter is the process of becoming echad, becoming one, a growing period that includes uh, battles to cleanse the flesh, right? We're learning, this is like going into the land, you got to rid it of those enemies there. And so there are battles to come to cleanse the flesh. We don't want to just cover over the sin, we want to deal with it. And there's an establishing of the kingdom, right? We want you to be our king. Okay, well, we're going to make a kingdom together. And um, eventually we come to that place of fruitfulness of the marriage and deep echad, a, a deep oneness, the deep oneness of husband and wife. Well, that's the big picture. Um, and so if all of that was just a little bit much, what I want you to remember as we keep going with Rosh Hashanah now is the idea that Rosh Hashanah begins a second journey in the year, and that is the journey of maturity. The journey of maturity. 
And so the maturing bride, here are some things about the, the maturing bride to keep in mind. We're going to see echoes of these, all of these things in Rosh Hashanah. And so the maturing bride, she knows how to submit to God, right? We already said make him king. She knows how to submit to God. She is faithful to the covenant. And she steps up to bring forth from her own heart a gift of herself. And she is fruitful. And so we, um, we want to see how we see each of these ideas uh, throughout Rosh Hashanah, the different traditions, the readings and such. And so let me say that again. The maturing bride knows how to submit to God. She is faithful to the covenant. She steps up to bring forth from her own heart, from her own free will, a gift of herself, and she is fruitful. And so as we start to dig into the details now, let's start with the basics, actually, first for Rosh Hashanah. We're not given much about this moed. And so that in itself tells us something about the day. And we'll connect that to what we just said about the bride in a minute. But the day is not actually called Rosh Hashanah in Scripture, but it's referred to as a day of a memorial for Teruah, a day for making a noise or alarm or clamor. So biblically, we derive the name Yom Teruah rather than Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah is a traditional title for the day. And uh, this noise or clamor has been anciently understood to be the blowing of the trumpet. It doesn't actually come out and say, blow the trumpet. Uh, it says, make this clamor, make this noise, make, sound the alarm. And, um, and so we've understood that anciently. The Jews have understood that to be the blowing of the trumpet, and not just the trumpet, but especially the shofar, which is made from the ram's horn. And so we are also told that it is to be a day of rest regarding commandments that were given for Rosh Hashanah. Um, it's to be a day of rest and a holy convocation, and we are given specific sacrifices to do on this day which is not a lot, or maybe the least of all that were given for the Moedim. So interestingly, though, in Nehemiah chapter 8, we see a fascinating Rosh Hashanah scene that I think adds a bit to our understanding, at least it adds our, a bit to our understanding of all the Moedim in general, including Rosh Hashanah. And so on the first day of the seventh month, right, that is Rosh Hashanah, Ezra reads uh, the Torah to the people, and they begin to cry as they are listening to it. And Nehemiah and Ezra and the Levites, you know, they, oh, what's happening here? They kind of say to the people, I think they were probably happy that the people were, were moved. Um, but they do say to the people, kind of by way of comforting them, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. And Nehemiah goes on to tell them after the reading is done, go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to our Lord and do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So here in Nehemiah, it would seem to say that not only Rosh Hashanah, but any of the holy days are to be primarily times of joy, not sorrow. And this is important to keep in mind because Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur also can tend to develop a rather heavy 
atmosphere. Here we're being told the Moedim are a time for joy. And so a Moed is a marker in time. We rejoice when we pass through a birthday or a graduation or some other marker in time. And they're, they're days to meet with God. They're days on which we have appointments with him. And he does his work in us on those days. But we generally don't show up for an appointment to God wearing long faces, right? We want to be with him with joy, with joy. And to let me mention here that we can, um, we can be just a bit overwhelmed by, by an approaching moed or an approaching season of moedim. So we have to be careful to not squelch that joy within us. Um, we think of all that we need to get done. We wonder if we're walking them as we should. And so let me say here that these days are meant for life, not anxiety. God is, um, he's concerned with the heart first and the details second. There's only so much we can do. And so we try to prepare, but we also are quick to give ourselves and each other a little grace. Let's remember, um, for example, the scene with Mary and Martha. Mary focused on what mattered in the moment, what mattered in the moment. And, and you say, well, of course she can do that because Martha was the one doing everything. She was doing all the work. But Yeshua says to her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. And so Yeshua's answer to Martha's request that, you know, she says, go tell Mary that she needs to help me. <laughs> She's there at the feet of Yeshua listening. And his answer to her implies that Martha, you know, there's, there's really one choice here that's the best choice. And, and you're just being a little too anxious here. And you too could have chosen the good portion. And so I'm not taking that away from her. Um. And so kind of implied there is the idea, you know, um, Martha, if you had just kind of let it go and joined Mary, it would have worked out. I would have made sure that it worked out if I had to make the food out of thin air myself. You know? And so let's just take these days one step at a time and our preparations one step at a time and let's trust him. You know, we're doing our best. He's going to make it work out for us, right? He's going to make it work out. We will choose the best portion as we go. And so to sum up the commandments regarding uh, Rosh Hashanah, we aren't told much beyond that it's a special Sabbath and a memorial day for making a noise, um, which we understand to be the trumpet. And uh, with the other Moedim, really, we, are, we can discern various reasons for them. Passover is obviously a memorial of the coming out of Egypt. Shavuot and Sukkot are connected to harvests and are also linked to historical events. Yom Kippur is a day of atonement, but what about Rosh Hashanah? It's not expressly linked to anything. And so let me make an important point here about this lack of information with this Moed. Clearly, God wanted the purpose of this day to be vague. Why would he 
Why would he do that? Why would he let it be vague? And that, that vagueness makes us uncomfortable. We're forced to rely on tradition for one thing, especially Jewish tradition. I mean, if you're asking, what is this, what's the purpose of this day? Where can you go except the tradition? And many Christians in particular are very wary of tradition. And I think we have good reason to be. <laughs> but, and you know, I grew up in a, a Christian denomination myself that didn't want to do anything in the worship setting that didn't have a clear biblical precedent. Uh, and so no musical instruments, for example, in our worship, because we don't happen to see that in the New Testament, they would say, um, in a worship setting. And so we don't want to rest on tradition. We want to rest on what's written. That's where we're safest, we feel like. But more and more as I get older, I'm beginning to understand that's not really God's way. That's not really, that's not maturity. And so here we can already start to make an application to our frame, just in this fact that we're not told very much. Remember that we said one aspect of the journey of maturity, right? The second journey, starting at Rosh Hashanah, is that the bride steps up to bring a gift from her own heart, right? She's going beyond what's written, beyond what's directed to her. God doesn't want a robot who will simply do whatever he says and not do anything he doesn't expressly say is okay to do. He wants a bride who comes alongside him and shapes an offering of service out of love for him. He, he couldn't tell us too much about this day. This day is important, setting this first day of this journey. And so we have the seed right there of the idea um, for, the, for this journey of stepping up to be the bride. He tells us little, and we're forced to do our own digging and thinking and discussing and shaping the forming of a tradition to come up with an offering to him for the day. And we can beautify it as we want to, um, as we make more applications. And um, as long as we, you know, we can make our own innovations and add our own personal traditions, our family traditions, our congregational traditions, as long as we're staying within the Torah that is given for the day. And I think we, we are encouraged to do that in our own families, our own congregations. Over the centuries, the bride has come up with uh, topics to focus on for the day and ways to observe it. And, um, you know, I believe it's pleasing to God. By adding touches that are meaningful to us, we beautify our Torah observance and I think these things are precious to God. I told you to do X, Y, Z, and you're doing X, Y, and Z, but you're adding in this and you're adding in that because it's meaningful to you and it expresses your heart to me, right? That's part of maturing. And so this brings us to the traditional themes and understandings of Rosh Hashanah. Each of the special days in the calendar, you know, in and thinking about how we dig into these, what's the heart of the traditions that have been built around the day? Well, each of the special days in the calendar has a special prayer called the Musaf prayer that is added, that is suited to that day specially. And these um, special prayers, um, they 
just they're the key kind of they're one of the keys to opening up what specifically we have gleaned over the centuries about the, the spiritual nature of this day or that day and so the musaf for rosh hashanah is said to have three topics and they're very clear about this and so the first one is crowning god king the second one is remembrance, the, the, the idea of remembering, the act of remembering, but it's especially connected to remembering the covenant, the covenant with God. And then three, the shofar is the third topic, crowning God king, remembering the covenant, and the shofar. And the shofar also has a specific connection. It is the idea of awakening and repentance, tshuva. Right, which we've been talking about in the month of Elul, that gets kicked into high gear in the 10 days starting at Rosh Hashanah, leading to Yom Kippur, the idea of repentance. And so, one more time, the three are crowning God king, remembrance of the covenant, and the shofar's call to repentance. And so these three are not equal in the prayers. One of them is regarded as the main focus of Rosh Hashanah, um, and the other two are just kind of helping with that one main one. And so the emphasized theme throughout the Rosh Hashanah prayers is crowning God king, the first one. And so the idea of how the other two are coming in to support goes something like this. You want to crown God as king? Well, wonderful. Do that, but it's vital that you bring the covenant into this moment. Remember and reaffirm that covenant because it is the word through which you have relationship with God of any kind, including this king-subject relationship. That, that covenant, remember it today, on that day, because it's very important in serving the relationship. And so you need to not only affirm that covenant, but you need to also check your walk and fix anything that might be coming between you and him. And you need to go deeper with him through that process of, of shuva and repentance. So in other words, again, the primary goal is the relationship. And here that's expressed by crowning him king. The other topics have supporting roles to play um, in that. Remember the covenant, that's part of your relationship. Fix anything. You don't want anything coming between you and God as king. And so just as an aside here, uh, though it, you know, though it's maybe not a main focus, let's not miss that the shofar is awakening us on Rosh Hashanah, especially um, to call us to repentance. And there is that connection there to the 10 days of awe and so that, that has to be something that we talk about, uh, this awakening to repentance. So repentin repenting itself is actually not a focus of the Rosh Hashanah prayers, uh, hardly mentioned. And so even though it is the first of the 10 days, uh, which are 10 days of repentance, the, the 10 days begin with hearing the call to repent. So in terms of what we're doing and pushing repentance forward, on that day we're listening to the shofar. And we are allowing it to awaken something in us. Starting on the second day, start your, your deep repentance.
And so this repentance idea is, uh, is it's connected to the idea of the judgment that is being rendered at this time. Um, this moment of new beginnings is a time of judgment. And I think we can feel an inherent connection there. You're starting again on a new journey. Well, why don't you figure out how well you did on the last journey you know, and carry that forward with you into the new journey. Uh, Rosh Hashanah is also said to be uh, the day when, in, in thinking of where this idea of judgment is coming from uh, and, and Teshuvah related to this judgment, um, Rosh Hashanah is said to be the day when Adam and Eve were created, right? So the actual first day of creation would have been back at the end of Elul. Um, Rosh Hashanah is said to be the, the sixth, sixth day of creation when Adam and Eve were created, also the beasts. And so it was also the day, because they didn't make it a day without sinning, it's also the day they sinned and the day that the judgment was rendered regarding that sin. So the shofar calls us to repentance, and we feel the need for this now because we are in a season of judgment. For example, with that very first judgment on the day of the creation of Adam and Eve. And so uh, one idea is that even though the judgment happens on Rosh Hashanah, the gates are kind of left open and the opportunity for repentance is given for 10 days. And those, the gates close on Yom Kippur. That's when the judgment is sealed. And so obviously this kind of a tradition is going to give a little extra boost to our repentance during that time. Oh no, the, the gates are closing. <laughs> I better do what I can right now. <laughs> and so... Um, Returning now, though, to the main focus of the day, where, where does this idea of crowning God king come from? Well, the origin is lost in time. We know, though, that um, it was a part of Rosh Hashanah very anciently. It's found already in the Mishnah, which is Judaism's first attempt to write down the oral Torah, and it dates to around 189 A.D., the second century, right? The second century, uh, we, we, we have the Mishnah, and in there, we already find this idea of crowning God king on Rosh Hashanah. So this idea was likely already present when Yeshua walked the earth. Maybe Yeshua himself focused on crowning God king on Rosh Hashanah. Now, the Bible does give us, though, some examples of the shofar being blown at the coronation of the king, and especially one in particular, the coronation of King Solomon. In 1 Kings, it says, There Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. Then they blew the trumpet, and all the people said, Long live King Solomon. And so the blowing of the trumpet and the proclamation of the king. So another uh, push, we could say, in the direction of focusing on making God king comes from the annual Torah reading cycle. We saw last week that Parsha Nitzavim must be read on the Shabbat before Rosh Hashanah. So the yearly readings are worked out in order to make that happen. We got we to juggle all these Torah portions to make sure that Nitzavim comes on 
the Shabbat before Rosh Hashanah. So clearly the sages have seen a significant connection between Nitzavim and this Moed. And the title of that portion, Nitzavim, comes from the moment when Israel is standing there as one in front of Moses, as Moses leads them to renew the covenant with God. And so this idea of renewing the covenant is akin to us having a moment in the year when we say once again, God, you are king and we are your people. And so in the year, we're kind of renewing that relationship and we're doing it. We're renewing the covenant. And that's what we see happening in Nitzavim um, by saying, you are our king. And so Nitzavim is pushing us a little bit in this direction of crowning God king. But I think the most powerful argument for this focus on crowning God king at this time comes from studying the calendar, where we see that this, you know, as we look at the calendars, we study it, we'll see that this is our first real point in the year to step up, to use our own free will to elevate God over us. This is a free will moment. Um, And to offer ourselves from our own free will to him, which is what a subject is doing. I, I, I offer you myself. I am the subject to you and your kingdom. And so how is it that we're not really having much free will until this point? Well, Passover and Shavuot are associated with youth. And um, when we are young, we don't have much free will. At Passover, God really swoops in and rescues Israel from Egypt. He so actively devastates Egypt that Egypt essentially pushes Israel out in the end, right? Egypt is compared to a mother, pregnant mother with Israel. <laughs> and, and so they just become so perturbed and so uncomfortable with this growing nation within, in them. And then the, the death of the firstborn was the last straw, and they just push Israel out. And Israel doesn't have a lot of choice in that moment. Passover is really God reaching down a hand from heaven to Israel first, right? He reaches down to us first before Israel can stretch upward. And then we come to the third month, Shavuot. Um, It's really connected to Passover through the counting of the Omer. You know, some consider that one long extended Moed. And even there, as we're getting to the third month, we're a little bit older, right? That's a moment of adolescence, we've said. But Standing there at the base of Mount Sinai, this mountain that is shaking and bellowing with smoke, or billowing? Billowing with smoke and and glowing with flashes of lightning. Who's going to say no to God in a moment when, you know, the sages say, it's like God held the mountain over our head and said, if you don't accept this covenant, I'm, I'm dropping it on you. And so, again, their free will is limited by their clear vision of God. But here we come now to Rosh Hashanah, and it's a bit of a blank slate. God just basically says, get together on this day. It's solemn. It's holy. Make a noise together. And we're left to fill in the empty space. And in other words, we're old enough to have our own free will now. And he recognizes that. And he doesn't tell us too much about what to do. And 
So what do we do? Well, we make it work with what he told us to do, but we've got to bring ourselves into that. We're told to make a noise. So we decide that the noise we make is going to call us to repentance. And the prayers we craft to speak out, or the Jewish people have crafted, to speak out together, they're going to say, God, we say today that you are our king. You chose us before. You reached down and you pulled us out of that pit of Egypt. And you reached down to come down on the mountain in the desert. Well, now we reach back to you. This is our moment to come back to you. And here we stand with our own free will and with a day that you chose to give very little shape to, very little form to. And so our choice is to reach back to you with our free will. We stand here today together to say that you are our king. We accept. And we're an adult now, and we can do that. And the decision is made. And so the rabbis point out that a king can't appoint himself. If he does that, he is a dictator, not a king. A king must be elevated by the people. It's not enough that God swoops in to deliver the people at Passover. It must be the case that the people of their own volition decide to make him king. He is ready and willing to be king, but he's not going to assume that place until we put him there. Again, God wants a bride. He doesn't want slaves. He doesn't want robots. And so let's turn now to making a few quick connections to the Torah readings for Rosh Hashanah. At first, they may seem a bit oddly chosen, but with a little connecting, we can start to see the wisdom here. The main readings for the two days of Rosh Hashanah are Genesis 21 for the first day and the following chapter for the second, Genesis 22. In Genesis 21, we see the birth of Isaac. Once again, uh, the the promised son is born. And this is followed in the chapter in short order by the sending away of Hagar and Ishmael. And there's a third scene there too in chapter 21, which is the covenant between Abraham and Avimelech, um, which I believe he was a Philistine person, um, king. But... um, The second chapter then, for the second day of Rosh Hashanah, is the binding of Isaac, the Akedah. And so we can find in these two chapters all of the themes we have been talking about today. The the coming together of opposites, shuva, repentance, um, covenant with God, the king, and fruitfulness. All of these we can see here. So... To do justice here uh, to this idea and this section, it would really need a whole teaching on its own to make these connections. But let me just draw just a few quick connections here regarding the coming together of the opposites or the complements. First of all, we have the conceiving of a son. And this in itself is like the seed of, of this idea of the coming together of opposites for these chapters and these readings. The two must come together, the husband and the wife have to come together to produce the child. And, but I want to focus here on Isaac, um, because there's another way here that we're really seeing these, this coming together of opposites. And um, it's meaningful here that the readings for Rosh Hashanah are focused on Isaac. 
I believe this is because Isaac is the bridge that brings together compliments. Isaac's name kind of is a, is a hint of this bridge essence that he has. It means laughter. And laughter results when two opposites come together kind of suddenly and surprisingly. So someone's thought was clearly headed in one direction and leading you in one direction, and then all of a sudden it careens in another direction. And that strikes us as funny. Or, for example, the bringing together of like the, the arrogance of that, that very arrogant man who slips on the banana peel. And all of a sudden, he's, he thinks he's up here, but all of a sudden, he's down here. And that's humor, right? That's laughter. And so this laughter is rooted in these opposites coming together, and that's Isaac's name. Uh, but more deeply, Isaac is the bridge between his father, Abraham, on the one side, and his son, Jacob, on the other. These two patriarchs are complementary, Abraham and his grandson Jacob. And they connect together through Isaac. They overlap, in fact, through this lifetime of Isaac. Abraham, um, you know, again, this would also require its own teaching here. So maybe one day. But Abraham relates to God as a newborn, one who is just drawn out of the darkness of the nations. Abraham's relationship to God is energized by a childlike faith, we could almost say. But it's different for Jacob. He's further down the line of the generations and this developing relationship with God. And so whereas Abraham listens in an uncomplicated way to God, Jacob wrestles with God, right? And that's very much a part of his name, this heel grasper and and this one, this Israel who wrestles with God. And so moving on from uh, the birth of Isaac, which we connected to the coming together of opposites, and especially Abraham and Jacob. Let's, Let's move forward in the readings. Next, we have Abraham sending away Hagar and Ishmael. And, you know, can't we connect this idea the sending away of Hagar and Ishmael to the, the picture of Shuva and repentance. The episode with Hagar was a lapse of faith, a surrender to human reasoning to accomplish God's will, right? Do we wait in faith for the promise or do we help God out a little bit here? And so it was a stumble, a stumble of sin. And how do you repent from a stumble? Well, One of the things you do is you do what you can to right the wrong. You limit the damage that has been done. Try to undo that damage. That's a part of repentance. It's a part of shuva. So, sending away Hagar and Ishmael, shuva, repentance. Well, the next scene is the covenant with Abimelech, which seems, to be honest, strangely stuck into the narrative there. One of the local kings there. And so, uh, to be honest, I would need to take some time to think about what all is going on there. But in terms of crowning God king, there's a very obvious connection here. We have the meaning of Abimelech. The, The name means, my father is king, right? 
can't get clearer than that, really. <laughs> so as to why God should represent himself to Abraham at this point through a Gentile king, uh, maybe we can simply say that God is always revealing himself to us through everything. It's all him. And here somehow he's relating to Abraham through this Gentile king, and he's, and he's somehow picturing a covenant um, with himself through Avimelech. My father is king. And so um, we can see in, in that third portion of that first chapter, this connection to the idea that we are crowning God king at Rosh Hashanah. Well, lastly, we come to the idea of fruitfulness and also the binding of Isaac, the next chapter. The key to fruitfulness is in faith, slowly learning how to surrender more and more of your life to God. And this is what Abraham has learned to do. God gave his son to us from the foundation of the world. And here we read about how Abraham imitates God by offering up his own son, Isaac. And in that surrendering of self is the key to not just fruitfulness, but abundant fruitfulness. Abundant fruitfulness is a manifold blessing, not just one, not just Isaac, but a manifold blessing. And we read here after Isaac is allowed to get up off the altar um, that God says through an angel, this is what he says, you know, okay, I've seen what, what you were willing to do, Abraham. And God says through an angel, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, or you could say your only begotten son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Well, we find this um, same kind of surrender actually in the Haftarah reading when Hannah surrenders Samuel to the Lord and he blesses her. He blesses Hannah with five more children, three boys and two girls. <clears throat> so that surrender is the key to the deep fruitfulness. It's really the story of what we're learning how to do in the second journey of the year, which again begins at Rosh Hashanah. Well, as we turn now to a focus on Yeshua, I want to focus on how all of this is um, leading us to Yeshua, as it must. It must lead us to Yeshua. First of all, we mentioned earlier that when we step up to elevate God as king, he responds to that, through Yeshua. And so the next Moed, Yom Kippur, is focused on what Yeshua does in the heavenlies first. We could say on his way down, maybe we could say. And Sukkot is connected to the incarnation, Yeshua tabernacling among, among us. So in response to our accepting the invitation to be in relationship with God, yes, be, be our king, we accept. He sends his son through whom we enter um, in a more personal and tangible way into that relationship with God. It's like that relationship becomes more concrete and more concrete as these Moedim progress in Tishrei. But 
here's the thing. His son arrives, and as I alluded to before, not only with a crown on his head, but in wedding clothes too. It turns out that what God has in mind here is not just the king-subject relationship that we are emphasizing on Rosh Hashanah, but the husband-wife relationship is what he is emphasizing through his son. Also that he is also called the king, and so that relationship is part of it as well. But returning to the, the heart of Rosh Hashanah for a final thought here, <clears throat> I want to point out that the traditional progression of prayer topics on Rosh Hashanah leads us straight to Yeshua. And so, you know, Messianic Sea and the blowing of the shofar, the announcing of the return of the Messiah, right? That trump will sound one day at his return. And surely there is, you know, that there's truth there and the, kind of the Messianic emphasis on the return of the Messiah. But we can also see this pointing to the Messiah in the three topics emphasized in the Musaf, you know, addition to the prayers. And so remember that those are crowning God king, <coughs> remembrance of covenant, of the covenant, and three, the shofar call to repentance. And so if we just think about those in that order, we, we come to the need for Yeshua. Though what the Jews have worked out traditionally to emphasize on that day, in that order, it's, it's pointing us right to Yeshua. And so from a place of separation from God, which again is pictured in the three weeks, the destruction of the temple, we reach out to God by crowning him king. We understand that relationship with God, though, happens through covenant. And we affirm this. That's the second topic. But the third topic makes us aware that there's a problem. And so we're left in this progression of thoughts with this problem. The shofar calls us to repentance. And the great power for effective repentance is found only in one source, the Messiah. It's by the Messiah's blood. It's by Yeshua's blood that the work in the heart is done. That leads to real change in a person's life. Again, these prayers have, have led us to this shofar call to repentance. Where does that real repentance, that deep repentance, that effective dependence, uh, repentance come from? It comes only through Yeshua and the work in our hearts that comes through him in the new covenant. And so praise God for him. And so through this progression of prayers on Rosh Hashanah, we come to the foot of the Messiah. And we are also prepared for the next Moed, Moed, which is Yom Kippur. Well, now I know this is a lot of information to take in, but here's the good news. You don't have to understand it to fully enter into it. And praise the Lord, because none of us fully understands it. There's not one of us who does or ever will and so as a final word here, let me just suggest that we come to Rosh Hashanah with the mindset that we gather together as one, and it is a day to be united, to stand as one body, not to think about our differences, but we come to that day united um, as one to reconnect to God, to renew our relationship with him by crowning him king once again. 
that is what is forefront in our minds on Rosh Hashanah. There might be a lot of ideas, a lot of um, what is this day about, a lot of trying to remember. Start from that one idea. We, we come together today dressed in, in, in white, dressed in our, our good clothes, because it's a moment of coronation. We come to crown him king. And so a coronation is, is solemn on the one hand. It's awe-inspiring. Think back to the crowning of, of King Charles we just saw. It's solemn on the one hand. It's awe-inspiring, but it's also joyful. And all of those at the same time. And this is the, the, the atmosphere that we should cultivate for Rosh Hashanah. And connected to this coronation, we look forward to how that decision gets played out through the coming of the Messiah, which is imminent in the calendar. Messiah Yeshua is about to come. And, and in our crowning God as king, we are opening the doorway once again to the coming of Yeshua the Messiah. Well, that's all for today. Thank you for listening. May God Bless us on this special day of Rosh Hashanah. May we be focused on crowning him king. And may we experience a renewal and a deepening of our relationship with him. And may we rise up to be the people he has made us to be. Shalom.